0: Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with you all tonight. We have a wonderful show coming up. We have two parts of a show, which we love to give you, not just one part, but two. So, the first half, we're going to be talking to John Rogers, who is a screenwriter and the creator of the television series Jackie Chan Adventures, Leverage, The Librarians, The Player. Rogers also co wrote the films American Outlaws, The Core, Catwoman and Marry Me, and co-wrote the story for the film Transformers. Then, during the second half, we're going to be joined by journalist Michael Tracy and historian-political scientist Aaron Good. But before we start the show, just want to remind people, please do like the stream. It's an easy way to support the show for free. You just give it a thumbs up. Also, subscribe if you haven't already. You just hit the subscribe button and then the bell so that you don't miss any of these streams. If you can, you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That way you get to hear the full show and see the full show. If you're watching this live, you get to see the whole thing. But if you're watching this later and you want to see the full debate about JFK between Michael Tracy and Aaron Good, then the way to do that is by going to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So without any further ado, we are going to bring on our first guest who is a member of the Writers Guild of America Board of Directors, as well as that creator of all those programs and movies that I just mentioned. John Rogers, welcome.
1: Thank you for having us on, Katie. We really appreciate it.
0: Of course. So tell us why you're out on strike. What are the issues that you're striking over?
1: Well, the short term is the AMPTP has lost its mind. The long explanation is that unfortunately, over the last 10 years, Writer pay in television, film, and comedy variety, with the advent of streaming and then adjustments we made during COVID to keep the business going that we then didn't earn it back when you know we were able to get back into working on a more regular situation, has decreased across the board, both pay and working conditions and writer power. Uh, for television writers, even though, you, I mean, and everybody out there has known, the last 10 years has been peak TV. It's been some of the greatest television ever made. Uh, you've seen an explosion in streaming. At the same time uh, that the company's profits have soared, the median pay for a television writer has dropped 4%, and adjusted for inflation has dropped 25%. Uh, For feature writers, they haven't seen a pay increase since 2018, and their income has dropped uh, about 14%. And comedy variety writers are not covered. They really have no minimums when their content is made for streaming service. So when you see everything on YouTube or you go watch clips of your favorite uh, comedy variety show and nightlight, nightlight show, they have a loophole where they say, well, this is promotional. So we don't have to pay you anything for this. But of course for the first 15 days, which is when that is in force, that's when the only time anybody ever watches these clips, nobody does a deep dive on the Conan monologue, you know, two months later. And so all of these work has been co-op. Well, some of us are comedy nerds. I was a stand-up, Yes. But, but this is the thing is that, In all three general fields that the Writers Guild of America covers, the writers have just lost money during this massive expansion. So this strike is very much not about trying to get money for the future, it's trying to claw back the losses of the last 10 years and protect ourselves to what we see as growing abuses that we're seeing the beginnings of now that we will know will only get worse in the future.
0: What is it like right now on the picket line?
1: It's week three. So it's enthusiasm uh, for a lot of young writers. This is their very first action. Uh, I actually was walking with a kid who's like 25, and he turned to me. He's like, am I a communist now? I think I have to tell my dad a book. I'm like, no, you're not. It's okay. Your dad's still going to love you. Um, so people are excited. And it's, it's a weird mix because for a lot of people who have been suffering under really bad working conditions. I know it's weird to say writers are under bad working conditions, but we also make television. We produce television. We're in physical production, and these conditions have been made intolerable by by the companies over the last few years. There's a feeling that we've been so not in control for years now that the ability to stand on a picket line and maybe affect some change to our actions is really invigorating everyone. For a lot of people, it's their first action. For a lot of people, it's their first feeling of being united with other writers. We're indoor children. We don't often gather in groups, particularly outside. A lot of feature writers are blinking in the sun and and a little shocked to see all these other writers. But this is, uh, it's a lot of enthusiasm. And and this enthusiasm is probably going to have to carry us for a while. So it's great to see.
0: What can you tell us about the Writers Guild of America, about its history?
1: Writers Guild of America was formed roughly 90 years ago. It was one of the first entertainment guilds. And it is over the course of its 90 years and this is one of the reasons that we had a ninety-eight percent strike authorization vote. The guild is incredibly united in this particular action because we know everything that we have now came about because of a strike that the writers' guild did over the last ninety years. Uh, several writers, including Cory Doctorow, who I'm sure you know, have pointed out that Hollywood labor unions are really the only matured labor force in America uh, that is managed maintain its power. There's a reason that even the truck drivers have good middle-class lives and own houses. You know, this is a union town. This is a union business. And so our health and pension we got because of a strike. Our residuals we got because of a strike. And particularly inspiring, the reason we get residuals, which are the TV and movie equivalent of copyright, of author's copyright, is because the writers in the 50s gave up everything that came before, everything they had made, and struck so every writer after them would get those residuals. I mean, that's stunning when you think about it. They gave up every claim to every, their life's work so that future writers would not be treated that way. And that's the, the example we're following you know, as we move forward. And this has been the tradition of the writers. It, it, during the 70s and 80s, there were a lot more strikes uh, that really thinned out. And then the last strike was the 2007-2008 strike that we did in order to get jurisdiction over the Internet.
0: And how did that work out?
1: Well, it was important because you know when we went out, it, we had kind of screwed up DVDs because Hollywood, and and look, I think one of the reasons people are sympathetic to the strike is they realize it's all big companies now, not just Hollywood. Whenever there's a new distribution model or technology, they always say, well, we're not sure it's going to be profitable. Could you give us a break on this and maybe and maybe just not take the profits? And we did that with DVD and we got screwed. We didn't get any of that money and that was billions of dollars. And so when the internet was coming, the writers smartly said, well, this is going to be a thing. And the companies were like, oh, we don't even know streaming is going to be any money. We don't even know there's a future. It's just promotional. Uh, And so we struck and we struck for hundred days and the Directors Guild uh, actually negotiated a pattern that we were able to lock onto. And um, as a result of that, we got jurisdiction over the internet, which is now 50% of the business, hundreds of millions of dollars in writers' pockets, that if we had not struck 50% of television and movies now, we just wouldn't have any claim on. Uh, so I think that's really hindsight has shown us how important these actions are.
0: And what does that mean, jurisdiction? It means that we get to
1: set the rules for payments, residuals, working conditions, uh, pre-production, that sort of thing. We basically get to be a partner uh, in the conversation about how we're going to move forward working in these this the system and how we're going to get paid based on it. And, and one of the challenges is each time there's a new distribution model, Uh, The Writers Guild contract is a living document. Nothing's ever taken out. It's only added on. So we have to negotiate a new set of terms for every time there's a new model for production, distribution, and payment. And so that's what that means. There would have been no streaming residuals. We wouldn't have gotten our back end, uh, you know, writers would have been paid for any of these streaming shows or movies that you see now, if we hadn't struck that. Uh, Because we have to explicitly put in the contract, every time there's a new tech and a new distribution model, what the rules are of how we get paid and how how we work.
0: So what is it specifically that you're waiting for to happen?
1: We're waiting for them to come back to the the table because we consider this an existential strike, an existential labor action, because we saw not just our pay and the financial elements really run down over the last 10 years, but the very structure by which we made television and film. We had a very profitable system in place that was also good at promoting the health and welfare of the writers and the mentorship of writers. You would start as a young writer. You would be mentored by older writers. You would go to set and work with actors. You'd learn how budgets work. You'd go into post-production. And so by the time you had a couple years experience under your belt and wanted to go create a show or write a movie, you knew the business. And what they've done over the last decade is they've basically figured out how can we pay the least amount of writers, the shortest amount of contracts, as separated from production as possible, and still get a show out of the other end of it. And they really used covid to, to really work out some of these experiments because they said to us reasonably, well, we can't have writers on set. That's another infection vector. Okay. Well, we'll stay home for the first time. We won't be on set. And then when it was like, well, can we start going back to set? Well, no, no, we have the new budgets. Don't have you in there anymore. We, we, we don't do this anymore. And so this strike is very much about the future of how we make entertainment and the quality of entertainment, because we're not training young writers to come up, and because the contracts uh, are tightened up and the number of writers being hired is smaller, just at the time, just in the first few years that writers of color and queer writers and women are starting to move into the system and move up, that's when they're killing these starter jobs that are this pipeline for new voices to get in. Read into that what you will, Uh, but we don't think that should stand.
0: Someone wrote in the chat, how does John feel about the various production pauses and shutdowns that have occurred so far? Is it a sign of greater solidarity among other unions, Teamsters, et cetera?
1: You know, we have got unbelievable union solidarity this time. Uh, that We had a meeting at the Shrine, a big rally at the Shrine, where we had every Hollywood union in that room for the first time in the history of Hollywood. And Lindsay Doherty from the Teamsters got up and she tore the roof off the joint. I mean, she was amazing. And she told us, she's like, if we see a sign at the gate, the trucks will turn around. And they have. Uh, a much, a Very much, you know, we, we got spotty enforcement back in 2007, 2008. It was a very different labor environment. As you well know, labor wasn't really looked upon with the favor that it is now. But I think that what happened is all of the unions in Hollywood realized this is one fight. This fight with the writers is nerdier, and they wear more glasses than this fight over here. But it's the same fight against the same bosses who want to downgrade our ability to make a middle-class living and grind us down as much as they can, not to break even because these companies are all wildly profitable, but to edge out just even a tiny bit. So so me and every member of the board and every member of the Writers Guild is ecstatic that we have this labor union unity. We have SAG-AFTRA out on the lines with us. We have IATSE out on the lines with us. It's just been a revelation to see what a united labor front can do. And we have shut down multiple shows and multiple movies. We have had a real effect on their physical production pipeline that they depend on for their economic health.
0: I'm going to ask you about the profit model in a second, but another question we got, is WGA aware that the CGI people are experiencing similar abuse? Might they collaborate?
1: Yeah. I mean, the VFX people, VFX and VO, a lot of the stuff that is blended from like animation and video gaming, they're the bleeding edge of that. Unfortunately, we're not in the same union, and the VFX aren't even kind of spottily unionized. So because labor laws were written in the 50s in America when they are fighting communism and are extremely reactionary, uh, we are restricted by what we can do with some other groups that we're not organized with. Uh, but we are going to endeavor to reach out and work with these groups, both in the present and the future, to create even more unity moving forward and trying to bring protection to all these other fields. But we're 100% aware of that.
0: Talk about the profits that are being made right now as people claim that they can't afford to pay writers.
1: Well, it's interesting because they always say, oh, we're under a squeeze, we're doing layoffs. And the companies have averaged between $28 and $30 billion in profit, not revenue, profit, every year for the last five years. And the reason they feel squeezed is not because they're not profitable, because Hollywood is a mature industry. And and anybody... Been following what's been going on in American uh, business for the last 30 years. It's got something, a very old story. It's a mature industry. And so it's really hard to go in and make a killing in it, and a fortune in it. But what if you make the point of it, not profit, but growth? And that's what happened. The streaming model gave these companies a chance to start following the Wall Street mantra of, oh, we're going to give you exponential growth. Growth is going to be the point of this. And so when these guys say, oh, we're squeezed, we're not hitting our numbers. They're not not profitable. They're not hitting the insane growth numbers that the Wall Street people demand for the ridiculous payouts that they want. My sympathy level is zero because, you know, if they argue, oh, we can't afford to pay people because we took $30 billion in debt so Discovery could buy Warner Brothers, I would like you to go to the WGA and point to the writer who told them that was a good idea. None of us thought it was a good idea. You know, the stuff we do, which is make entertainment, movies and television, comedy variety shows, that is profitable, People love them in this country. People love them in other country. You are making money selling it. We would like our percentage of that money, please. That's it.
0: It's kind of shifting gears a little bit, but how possible do you think it is for shows to critique the system, whether it's the television system, the streaming system, capitalism? How much critique is allowed?
1: Uh, (laughs) What's the old joke? You can imagine the apocalypse, but not the end of capitalism. Um, You know, I think that every show does their best. And look, it's so weird. We're working with multi-billion dollar companies to make entertainment and they give us a certain amount of freedom. When we were making leverage back in 2008, we started, it was right after the crash and we were ferociously anti-capitalist. We made the bad guys rich people. And we all of our bad guys were based on real people doing real corporate crimes. We pulled trial testimony to put in the characters' mouths. And much credit to Michael Wright at the time who was the president of TNT, because he got a phone call from Atlanta where the bosses were about every three or four weeks where someone would be on the phone angrily shouting like, is this socialism on my channel? And Michael, would be, no, it's a con and heist show. It's fine. But, you know, look at the irony and there's no way around it. When Leverage came back, we were on Amazon's freebie, you know, and so we are working within a system. We are working with the people we are critiquing. But at the same time, we got no notes about our plot lines. And so is that because they're giving us artistic freedom or they consider us harmless? I don't know. But I think that's the challenge that everyone faces is we are stealing and borrowing power. And then how you use it is up to the individual moral fortitude of the show creators and writers and performers on that show.
0: And leverage is great. Thank you. And has a very righteous framing. I don't want to give it away, but it's... no.
1: It's Robin Hood thieves. We steal from the rich and we make them miserable because that's the bonus. We also make them miserable and we give them right. But look, I mean, look at severance, which is absolutely a late stage capitalist commentary. You, you could not get more specific about it. It's made at Apple. Uh, and severance was just shut down because of our labor action. They, they actually suspended filming. And so there's, I mean, there's enormous levels of text you could pick apart there you know, a labor action against the company that's making it, stopping the company from making a show about people trapped for that company, you know, but it's what makes culture interesting.
0: I didn't realize until I was having dinner with a friend who works in this industry as an actor, but she was telling me that some shows are already created and shot and they're just not released because it's not worth it financially.
1: What has happened, and this is a very new thing, um, because of some of the buyouts and the mergers, some of these companies found themselves loaded up with debt. It's classic hedge fund equity crap that we've seen happen to, you know, it started manufacturing, moved to retail, and now it's in the information economy. And they just needed something to write down their expenses so they could go back to Wall Street and go, look, we we, we shaved our expenses, you know, reward us, give us, uh, justify our bonuses to the board. And one of the reasons, the ways they realized that is like, wow, we've got a whole movie sitting over here That got made. If we just never release it, we get to write off that whole 90 million bucks. Done. And that's years of people's lives and work. And they just went, Well, it's it's a better tax write-off. I I don't know how much money it'll generate us as a release. I know it's gonna make me some money as a tax write-off. And this is a very brand new thing. That's awful. It's awful. I mean. What's fascinating is this is the same sort of late-stage capitalism, vulture capitalism that has lived in manufacturing and retail, moving into the information economy, and I think kind of very amusing for some of us who've been doing this for a long time, kind of shocking a lot of the petite bourgeoisie who are in Hollywood, like, wait, but, but my face, the leopards, no. I mean, that's very much where a lot of people in Hollywood are right now. Even the execs at these companies are terrified because they realize for the first time our bosses realize they're expendable to their bosses.
0: You had mentioned before we started streaming that there were some creative protests and you guys were managing to make people's lives miserable. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the good things is you really shouldn't have picked with writers. I mean, we just sit around all day thinking about stuff. So not only have there been some wonderful protests that have gotten groups together, we had the African-American Writers' Protest at Disney and the Asian-American Pacific Islanders' Protest. Uh, We had a mariachi band outside Netflix Um, And I have a friend who's an executive at Netflix, and I talked to them, and they said, yeah, that was great. Our life was hell for that day. I'm like, well, that was the point. Um, You know, They actually tried to put a sign outside Warner Brothers from the Burbank cops, like, remember, honking your horn is a misdemeanor, and we will ticket you. And they did that specifically because the people at Warner Brothers were getting sick of it. Uh, But that's because people driving are supportive. People driving are excited to see anybody out on a strike line these days trying to shove back against the bosses. Uh, So yeah, and we have a couple other fun, creative things coming down the pike I'm not allowed to talk about, but we're gonna make sure that it stays interesting for the next few weeks.
0: There's this kind of narrative or discourse that we saw a little bit, and we addressed this last week, where some people are like, oh, well, you know, writers, they're not real workers, and TV writers are just creating, you know, propaganda and kind of lack of empathy for writers. And as we pointed out last week, it's a very good way to help the bosses to have this divide and conquer framing.
1: Look, I mean, I would have thought relative privation would be something we'd given up by now. But, you know, look, I completely understand that. It's very hard to look at somebody whose job is to not necessarily lift stuff. You know, the the jobs that I used to do when I was younger, I admit I'm biased. Can I swear on the podcast? Yes. Yes. I completely, when I meet writers, I tend to hire writers who have either lifted shit or taken shit. Like, that is, that is my parameter for whether I like you. Like, what was your first job? And I get that. But we are out here making entertainment for you. It's not just propaganda. It is an artistic expression. The Americans was not propaganda. You know, uh, Better Call Saul and, and is, was not, is not propaganda. You know, this is people trying to talk about society and the world around them. I mean, if you want to tell me what the propaganda message of Yellow Jackets is, please, I'd love to hear it. And I think that's kind of the thing is like, yes, there's always an element of corporate entertainment, which is going to, you know, we have had a real problem with propaganda and post George Floyd and post 2020, the writers have had a serious discussion about it. Brooklyn Nine-Nine tanked their entire show because of that, because the writers literally felt in good conscience, I can no longer write this anymore. And so, you know, in each, even some of the more mainstream shows have tried to deal with it in what limited way they can without alienating their audience and their bosses. And so, yes, I I get that, but that's a really good way to other, a group of writers, a group of workers who are trying to establish a precedent, not as maybe a specific precedent that what I get in my contract will help you, but a labor precedent, which is we picked a fight and we won. And every time a union picks a fight and wins, that makes somebody else go, maybe we should unionize, you know, like, like trees. The best time to start a union was 100 years ago. The second best time is today. And every time a union wins, no matter what that union is, it helps everybody.
0: Yeah, and we had on someone last week who was a UPS driver and a Teamsters member, and he's been going to the picket line here in New York City because he says this is how you build a working class movement.
1: Yes, 100%. We would not... We would not be nearly as effective as we are if the Teamsters and the Teamsters waved they're like so delighted to see us. They waved to us and they turn the trucks around and spin back around. This is, there's no middle class in Americans because we forgot this. You know, because we started to think, oh, that job isn't my class and that job isn't my class. No. Do you collect a salary? Are you a capitalist or are you a worker? If you're a worker, it doesn't matter what you do, you should be in a union and you should be supporting each other. And we're rebuilding that after we screwed it up for 30 or 40 years and now we have to rebuild it up and that's everybody's project
0: yes amen and how did you become a writer what's your
1: arc i was actually doing a physics degree at mcgill university in canada and i started doing stand-up as a hobby are you canadian no, I, was, I went up there because I had a great degree. I, I was born in the States. Oh, okay. And uh, I had a great physics program. And I uh, st- wanted to write, and I started doing stand-up as a hobby to learn how to write dialogue. And I kind of fell into – remember they gave every heavyset white guy a sitcom like for a while back in the late 90s? Or, well, I got one for a minute and a half. Uh, and then – so I fell into the TV side, and then I really wanted to write more than act. And so I just kind of picked my way through various – jobs. I put my head down and 30 years later, it's a career.
0: And what are some of your favorite
1: shows? Uh, that are on now? Uh, boy, um, well, Better Call Saul just ended. So that's that's really crazy. Uh, Diplomat's great. Uh, Yellow Jackets is, is really fantastic. Um, High Town, I really love just because I grew up on sort of the into that Cape Cod thing and it does a really good feeling of catching that Block Island, Fire Island vibe, you know, down there. TV, Somebody, Somewhere is fantastic. It's really a great look at people trying to scrape out their lives in middle America. And it's just got really great non-traditional leads. So I think there's, I think the half hour space is doing really interesting stuff right now. You know, Barry's magnificent, but Barry's just the easy answer. Barry's just like, well, of course it's, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a show that kids say they got into TV writing because of it, you know, and Bill Hader being that good a director is fundamentally unfair. Yeah. You shouldn't be that good an actor and that good a director. That's just wrong. But also, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of great indie films coming out now. I mean, there's, it's just a really great experimental space. But the frustrating thing is we should be using all this great television to train the next generation of writers, and the bosses aren't letting us. And as a result, you're going to see this pipeline dry up, and you're going to see unique voices that you should be hearing from not get their jobs and not get their shows out there.
0: Have you always been kind of politicized, or did you become politicized?
1: My father's very amused by this because my grandfather was a union organizer. He was a truck driver, and he's very much like, oh, this is your grandfather's genes, 100%. Um, I think it was interesting because I went to school in the nineties, late 80s and 90s in Canada, so I got an outsider's view of America during the Reagan and Bush years, and that can't help but politicize you because if you're inside the model as a middle-class white guy, you're not going to get the same thing as when you're living in Canada and your friends are going, well, that's insane, and you're, you're saying, I wouldn't have known it was insane if I weren't out here. So yes, I, w- I was not radically politicized. But then as I began to work more and more with the companies, you just see bad behavior and you just start fighting against it. And you're on one side or the other. I mean, I, that's why I, I hate this sort of, you know, why does everything have to be partisan? Because there's two sides and one is on the side of power and one is not. Pick your side. And so to whatever limited degree I've been able to do, I, I've done that and... Also, I'm a giant nerd, so I read a lot. And yeah, there you go.
0: What are some books that you recommend?
1: I'm really loving... um, I'm going to screw up her last name, Maria Mazzucato, the Italian economist. I'm reading The Value of Everything, which is her history of the theory of value theory. All her stuff is great. I went back and read Bruno Latour. You know, we've never been modern. Donut Economy, and I cannot remember the name of that writer. I'm very sorry. But basically... I also wind up getting uh, sucked into researching the thing I'm writing about. So whatever I enjoy reading about disappears as I wind up diving into uh, forensic pathology or whatever the hell I'm writing about now.
0: So, and what are you working on now?
1: Right now, I, would, I have two things. I have my own projects. Uh, one of which I just uh, came on to supervise a, an IP at uh, Amazon. Though we'll see if that deal closes because it didn't close before the strike. But my production company that I started about eight ten years ago specializes in advancing. Traditionally underrepresented writers, so Native American writers, LGBTQ plus writers, women writers of color, with the idea that I'm the old white guy they trust, and uh, look, you can trust. Here's a voice you ordinarily wouldn't let in the room, and and you know I'll help produce their stuff. And so we have a really striking show in development at HBO right now about uh, the Native American experience in the Midwest, and so we're just really excited to get these new voices on television and in film because you know it's so striking. Hollywood's an empathy machine. Like our job, if we do it right, is to get you to see other people's viewpoints. And that's one of the challenging things about writers is we we constantly have to put ourselves in other viewpoints. And the great struggle of the early 21st century is the death of empathy. And so really, you know, we're trying to get you to see somebody and through their voice and their story and how we show it on your screen at the same time that there's a very large section of this Country which says no, we don't want you to understand people's viewpoints. Your viewpoint is right. You know, you should be afraid. You should be huddled up. New different voices are bad. And and this is a, one of the existential struggles of the early 21st century. It's sad that it's fallen upon our our goofy shoulders to try to do it. But here we are.
0: Yeah, you just reminded me of for some reason it came into my head the idea of empathy and how art can really. Create that, and sometimes it can be very subversive, especially when it's very pop culture. And I always think of that movie Three Kings, yeah, with George Clooney, Ice Cube, and Mark Wahlberg.
1: The reason that movie should have done better and didn't do better is because it was unflinching, and it should have come out ten years later, and it would have been a classic. But at the time, it was far too subversive for what they were that the the the, the culture was ready for. Um, and and that I think is kind of the challenge: is how do you using the company's money, the company's distribution system, which are entrenched within channels of power, get stories about people who are not in power, out of power, or different visions of power out there. Uh, and I forgot the British philosopher who said the argument's the point, but like that's the point of entertainment. You should constantly be challenged. This just some stuff that bores you, some stuff that excites you, some stuff that challenges you, and some stuff that you realize didn't slide the knife in until about two years later, if you do it right.
0: I was just amazed, I remember, that that movie was able to get made at all. That it was such a mainstream cast. That
1: is a star using their influence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because that, of course, shows Iraqis in a sympathetic way.
1: Yeah. And and look, that that's kind of the the, the trade-off we're constantly doing in Hollywood. I'm going to make one for you, and they're going to use the power and influence that I got by making one for you to do one for me. And the good people in Hollywood use that one for me to advance voices and storylines that are not traditional. And then they burn off that power and influence and they go get some more power and influence by making the bosses happy again. But this is the constant exchange.
0: Well, John Rogers, any final words? This has been so great.
1: We wanna thank everyone for supporting the strike. Uh, We're very gratified that this uh, labor action seems to have gotten a lot of popular press and popular support in a way we didn't anticipate. If you would like to support us, the writers are taken care of. There is, however, the Entertainment Community Fund that you can Google. Uh, We are raising money for our friends on the cast and crew that are suffering because we're not in production. The writers themselves have raised $1.6 million for our assistance, for the people working on the sets, et cetera, who are out of work because of this. Uh, If you wanna contribute even two to five bucks over there, we'd appreciate it because it doesn't go to us. It goes to our friends who are out of work because of this action.
0: Well, thank you so much, John.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Katie.
0: All righty. That was an amazing discussion, and I really recommend Leverage. It's a great show. It's very fun. It's a heist show, but it also has a great political message. So we are just going to keep this show going. I just want to remind people, of course, to like the stream if they haven't already, to subscribe. Share the news with your friends. Someone in the chat just said that they didn't even know about this channel until the other day. The algorithm sucks. Well, yeah, it sucks, which is why I would like everyone to hit the thumbs up button because that's a way to get the word out. Also a reminder, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can also become YouTube supporters. And if you pay five dollars a month, and I'm so grateful to everyone who becomes Patreon supporters whether it's at the $1 a month level, which makes the show happen, or the $5 a month level, which gets you extended interviews and bonus interviews. You can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And that way you'll be able to see the full debate between Michael Tracy and Aaron Good, which we are about to have about JFK. So I'm going to bring in our next two guests. Michael Tracy is an independent journalist Aaron Good is a political scientist and historian, the host of American Exception podcast, and the author of American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. So welcome, Aaron and Michael. Hello. Hello. You're muted, Aaron. Silenced. Thanks, Katie. So let's see. I thought we could start. Obviously, it goes without say that people probably know this, that someone named RFK Jr. is running for president. And through his running for office, a discourse about his uncle, JFK, has been kind of reintroduced.
2: Well, he, he introduced it. It's not just that it happened to be reintroduced. He's leveraging that to enliven his current campaign. That's the only reason it's being discussed at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, sure, OK, so he's, he's bringing it up. But I, I think it's not inconceivable that it would be brought up by other people. Sure. Just not in the same way, probably, that he's been doing it. So I thought we could start off by watching two short clips of RFK Jr. talking about his uncle, JFK. And the first one he's asked, was the CIA involved in murdering JFK? So let's hear what he has to say.
3: I believe they murdered or were involved in the murder of your uncle. What, what have you come to personally? The CIA, yes, they were definitely involved in the murder and, the you know, and the six-year cover-up. They're still not releasing the, you know, the papers that legally they have to release. Um, But I don't think there's any doubt if you look at this huge, you know, mountain, monumental mountain of evidence and confessions, and, you know, so many people have confessed to their involvement. And for anybody who has doubts about that, I would recommend a book by Jim Douglas called The Unspeakable, because I think he's done a better job uh, than anybody else at kind of assembling and distilling all of the millions and millions of documents that. Uh, have been released over the past 50 years. And these things, these revelations are released incrementally, and so nobody really takes notice of them. But when you put them all together, the story is very clear.
0: Okay, and now let's watch another clip from Fox. Let's see what he has to say here.
3: There are confessions of people who were directly involved in the plot, who were involved in the planning of the plot, uh, who were peripheral to the plot. Uh, there's a 60-year cover-up. You know, the Warren Commission was run by Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, who my uncle fired, and then insinuated himself onto the Warren Commission and essentially ran the Warren Commission and kept this evidence from the Warren Commissioners. Either way, when Congress, 10 years later, investigated the crime with much more evidence than the Warren Commission had at its disposal— Congress found that, yeah, it was a plot, it was a conspiracy, there were multiple people involved, and most of the people in that investigation believed that it was the CIA that was behind it, because the evidence was so overwhelming to them. Uh, My father, when he investigated Jack Ruby, he found out that Jack Ruby had been deeply involved with Carlos Marcello's mob, with with, uh, Sam Giancana and all the people who were all of those mob leaders, Santos Traficante, who were the Havana casino owners, who had been recruited by the CIA in the Castro murder plot, so they were all working together in cahoots with the CIA. By the way, the day that my uncle was killed, I was picked up at Sidwell Friends School and brought home the first phone call that my father made after J. Edgar Hoover told him that his brother had been shot was to the CIA desk officer in Langley, who was only a mile from our house. And and, and my father said to him, did your people do this? His next call was to Harry Ruiz, who was one of the Cuban uh, Pigs leaders who had remained very, very close to our family and to my father. My father asked him the same question. And my father called John McComb, who was the head of the CIA, and asked him to come to the house. Macomb came over. And when I came home from Sidwell Friends School, my father was walking in the yard with John Macomb, and my father was posing the same question to him Was it our people wow. who did this to my brother? So it was my father's first instinct at the agency had killed his brother.
0: So there's a lot to debate here like who killed JFK, RFK as a candidate. But I thought we could start somewhere that, Michael, you kind of started here. You tweeted something out, kind of sarcastically. Michael writes, wow, I just found this footage of JFK saying in September 1963 that he's going to withdraw from Vietnam. This is why they killed him only two months later. Three exclamation points. And now let's play this footage.
4: These people who say that uh, we ought to withdraw from Vietnam are wholly wrong, because if we withdrew from Vietnam, the communists would control Vietnam. Pretty soon, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaya, would go, and all of Southeast Asia would be under the control of the Communists, under the domination of the Chinese, and then India, Burma, would be the next target. So I think we should stay, we should make it clear, as Ambassador-Lodge is now making it clear, while we want to help, we don't see a successful ending to this war unless the people will support it, and the people will not support the effort if uh, the government continues to follow the policy of the past two months. I hope that will be clear to the government should be. After all, they've been conducting this struggle for 10 years, and uh, I admire what the president has done. He's been counted out a number of times. I'm hopeful that he will come to see that uh, they have to reestablish their relationship.
2: Can I just give a a comment on that real quick? Yeah. Okay, so clearly that was intended to be a sarcastic remark uh, on my part, in that he's saying the diametric opposite of a pledge to withdraw from Vietnam, and even so, I was inundated with people who were convinced that it was evidence of what they had long assumed and what is now being reinforced to them through the vehicle of this strange RFK Jr. quasi-presidential campaign, which is that eureka bombshell evidence that JFK was on the verge of withdrawing from Vietnam, even though he's saying the exact opposite. So the interpretive frame that's being kind of popularized here and had been in the past, but now has this different tinge to it with a different sort of ideological valence given this RFK campaign is such that every piece of evidence, every data point that is unearthed is actually evidence for this theory of RFK Jr. carrying forth the mantle of the Kennedy dynasty being this bulwark against the deep state. And so they interpret everything through that lens. And and so they can come away with the exact opposite conclusion of what JFK in plain English is actually articulating there.
5: What say ye, Aaron Good? Yeah, uh, there's plenty of people around Kennedy who were saying that he was withdrawing from Vietnam. Uh, I think the clearest encapsulation of the policy was from Kenny O'Donnell, who was a close confidant of JFK. And he said that uh, JFK told him that they were going to withdraw in after the election, that If he withdrew now, there would be another red scare. So he couldn't do anything until after the election. But that was what he told Kenny O'Donnell he was going to do. Additionally, you have pretty much everyone around him in the top of the national security state uh, saying that Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam. His defense secretary, Robert McNamara, who not only was saying that this was what was happening, but he wrote a memoir about it. After the Oliver Stone movie, which used... John Newman's JFK in Vietnam as a resource. Uh, He's a historian who wrote his dissertation on JFK in Vietnam. Uh, This prompted McNamara to go ahead and tell the story about how they were uh, maneuvering to withdraw from Vietnam after the election. And it basically confirmed what Oliver Stone put in his movie, So you have Robert McNamara saying it, but that's testifying against interest. He would have known, and it's pretty damning because he prosecuted the war under LBJ. You have Max Taylor from the JCS, head of the JCS. He said he was pulling out. Arthur Schlesinger, uh, even McGeorge Bundy in the 2000s, he he is near death, and he's working on a memoir with this guy named uh, Goldstein, and he finds, looking at the documentary evidence that was shown to him that He he realizes for the first time that not only was Kennedy withdrawing from Vietnam, but he was withdrawing from Vietnam in a way that kept him, McGeorge Bundy, the national security advisor, out of the loop. So Kennedy knew that the Cold War insanity at the time, and even within his own administration, was such that... Coming out and just saying, I'm withdrawing from Vietnam is impossible. So he was lying there. He was dissembling. I mean, there's a lot of. Okay, the Cold, so the cold War requires, is utterly insane. This
0: theory, the, this kind theory of the Cold requires, War. This theory I, I didn't interrupt requires. you, buddy. Wait, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Tracy, wait, Tracy, wait, Tracy wait. I didn't interrupt let, you. Okay, so let, let him me finish, finish here. Okay, and then North
5: Mudd. The Cold War was foisted by Wall Street people who, during World War II, planned it that this was going to be, you know, that the US was going to go for empire. A few years later, they more or less lay out the Cold War by the time Kennedy takes office, this is established. The Cold War is just the, the reality that everybody has to exist in. So, everybody has to seem very tough. There's no way you could be elected if you weren't accepting the general tenets of the Cold War. So, that's what JFK had to accept. He did have to dissemble and or, you know, obfuscate some of his intentions at different times for political reasons because otherwise he wouldn't get reelected or elected in the first place. So, Was he perfectly honest at all times? No. But if he was, would he have had any chance to get into the White House in 1960?
2: No. Okay. Well, I mean, this theory, which is not generally based on hard, tangible evidence, but rather um, after the fact speculation and wishful thinking as to what would have been done if this timeline had gone in a different direction, um, it has to presuppose that everything in the evidentiary record that's actually based on Kennedy's own statements or his own actions, it was just this elaborate ruse. So JFK had to have been a chronic liar in order for this alternate theory to have any credibility whatsoever. So if the the argument is that Kennedy was a chronic liar, okay, I mean, that would seem to cut against this notion of him being this um, savior-like figure. Now, a lot of these reinterpretations did come in the aftermath of the Oliver Stone movie. And it had been a while since I had seen that movie. So I went back and looked at some of the contemporaneous coverage and I forgot about this particular quote, which is actually pretty telling. So this is the main character in the movie or one of them anyway, Jim Garrison, who was this new Orleans district attorney who thought he was going to prosecute the case, proving that there was a conspiracy that led to the killing of, of JFK where he says in one of his dramatic kind of uh, crescendo orations that, quote, we have all become hamlets in our own country. Children of a slain father leader whose killers still possess the throne. The ghost of John Kennedy confronts us with the secret murder at the heart of the American dream. OK, so that's like compelling, I guess, dramatic writing. Um, but it also is mythological, just kind of. Uh, bombast that people get sucked into and then recreate the factual record in order to support. And here's like, here's one element of the factual record that doesn't comport with this thesis at all, um, which is that if you look at the speech that JFK was en route to deliver on the day of the assassination in Dallas, one of the things that he's boasting about is that he, JFK, the Kennedy administration had ushered through a 600% increase in special forces capacity within the government, including the CIA. After the killing of JFK, once RF uh, LBJ takes over, uh, LBJ ramps down the assassination program that had been run out of the White House by way of John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy to uh, assassinate Castro. LBJ actually uh, Tamps down that program. So why wouldn't the CIA then want to kill JFK, uh, LBJ? They're the ones who actually, he's the one who actually reduced their power. Um, in this, in June of 1963, John F. Kennedy signs a CIA drafted order that drastically uh, increases the combat authorizations of the CIA in Vietnam, thereby expanding their purview radically in terms of their war making powers. Um, And on and on and on with this, I mean, all the countervailing evidence automatically gets kind of repurposed as signs that JFK was just hostage to circumstance, right? So when he was running in 1960 against Richard Nixon and was... condemning the eisenhower administration and nixon for being softies on cuba and letting communism run rampant in the western hemisphere that was just because it was you know political necessity had nothing to do with his own agency so everything is just this this like uh, broader sort of mythological interpretation of jfk rather than one that actually adheres to the factual record and another thing i'll note on this which is interesting is that if you go back into the Uh, archives around in the early 90s when this JFK Oliver Stone movie was first released. It's amazing how much agreement there is among observers and commentators on the asinine mythological uh, element of this movie, among people who don't ordinarily agree with with one another on lots of important stuff. So, you know, Noam Chomsky, Seymour Hersh, Alexander Coburn, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Ellsberg, all these people were agreeing with one another about how
5: Ellsberg. Ellsberg was a con, was a consultant on the movie JFK, and he endorsed the film or the book JFK and the Unspeakable that RFK okay. just mentioned. So, and he, also, he also his, that, he also says Ellsberg that he also says memoir. JFK was pulling out of Daniel Vietnam. Daniel
2: Ellsberg. No, Daniel Ellsberg didn't say that. Exactly. He absolutely no, uh, does. Uh, I, he said it and, to uh, me Daniel in front Ellsberg of a whole wrote, crowd of people. That he that what? That what's the exact quote? Is that okay? So leave just leave aside Ellsberg then, if you'd like. Although he did write in his memoir that one of the things that radicalized him to. Come out with the Pentagon papers and put his life on the line essentially was that the uh missile gap that JFK ran on in the 1960 election to condemn Nixon and Eisenhower as being softies was a total fabrication. That was what one of the things that Ellsberg emphasized as to not awesome JFK's to,
5: fabrication, though. It was the CIA told him that.
2: Oh, okay. So nothing is ever... See, this is what I'm talking about. Nothing I'm is saying, ever he's default. not the...
5: He was just saying what was told to him. And when he found out later, he was like, what? You mean we actually don't? Once he took office. So he was surprised to learn that.
2: Well, once he, once he took office, he ordered the biggest peacetime mobilization uh, or uh, militarization campaign that had been undertaken in U.S. history. Um, the biggest since 1940 under Roosevelt in World War II. That was what uh, Kennedy actually authorized and implemented in terms of tangible policy action, not like wishful thinking or interpretation of motive. That's what he actually did, and he had a, this maniacal obsession with assassinating Castro in conjunction with his brother
5: RFK Jr. And then on the no, day, there's, there's no, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Of course, there is. No, no written up. evidence. The there's only a, written evidence a, there's on a a this is written evidence. No, there's there's a bevy at all. evidence. There is an inspector general report that the CIA did after JFK died. And they said in this inspector general report, the agency was acting without presidential authorization. These were approved under Eisenhower and never authorized by Kennedy. They were operating uh, without presidential approval to assassinate Castro. This is the CIA's own word on the matter. There's an
2: absolute bevy of evidence, including words from uh, years later from the uh, CIA director that was appointed by uh,
5: Kennedy, Dick Helms. Well, Dick now Dick Helms actually lied about it. Well, Dick Helms is a he was convicted for perjury, so he's a convicted liar. So nothing the
2: CIA did. So 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 when 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 John F. Kennedy drastically uh, expands the authorizations of the CIA to engage in war making activity in Vietnam, or when he uses them to invade to launch a failed invasion of Cuba. Or, and then continues to obsess with Cuba along with his brother for years later, none of that redounds to him in terms of responsibility. It's all this like external imposition on him. If that's the framework to understand presidential action, then nobody's ever responsible for anything. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. Why is it that in the aftermath of the assassination campaign, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in the aftermath of the JFK assassination, Lyndon Johnson actually negates or removes the authorizations of the CIA to carry forth their assassination campaign I mean all this this mythical reinterpretation of the Kennedy administration requires assuming the that you know Seymour Hirsch is just a, a liar, the factual record as presented by such a, a wide variety of actually you know this passionate analyst is is wrong, and we have to go through these like secondhand myths that are being retold by people within the Kennedy orbit who are trying to, you know, reframe this, the, the history to make the Kennedys into these savior figures. I mean, in that, after the Ted offensive, there's a clear political shift where Robert F. Kennedy, gearing up to run for president himself, tries to assert some sort of uh, divide between him and the Johnson administration on on uh, Vietnam policy and is actually condemned for it at the time, Joseph Alsop, who was a columnist, said that it was a fraud for RFK to try to assert some sort of discontinuity between the Kennedy administration policy on Vietnam and the Johnson administration policy on Vietnam. And that's further reinforced by when RFK first entered the Senate after being elected in 1964, he gave one of, he gave a major speech on the floor of the Senate applauding Lyndon Johnson, for refusing to capitulate to the anybody who would be calling for a withdrawal, which was denounced at, as would have as be a betrayal of the Kennedy policy. So, in other words, if Lyndon Johnson had agreed to withdraw from Vietnam at that point, according to RFK speaking on the floor of the Senate, that would have been a betrayal of his brother John F. Kennedy's policy in Vietnam. And so he was applauding the refusal to withdraw. Um, and, and and you can go on and on and on with this. Yeah. A- and 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 you have to and th- but it takes a, an interested desire to reframe everything as like this crusade against the deep state to come up with a different interpretation.
5: So regarding the assassination plots, there's not a single document that you can point to that attributes responsibility or awareness of uh, an approval of assassination plots. The main document on it is the CIA's Inspector General report, which years after Kennedy's death said that the CIA was acting without presidential approval. So that doesn't prove anything because you can never disprove that like somebody you know didn't do something or whatever. But regarding the Vietnam issue, there actually is a written record, and I have some of it right here. If we could pull this up, Katie.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.